afternoon or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Brian Christie, founder of Special Investigations for National Geographic and author of the new novel In the Company of Killers, which is published today, April 13th. Brian, congratulations on publication day and welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you, Charlie. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Well, I want to start by talking about your background for a few minutes because it is not the sort of background one always runs across with novelists. Uh, you've worked in a funeral home, you've practiced international law, uh, and then you turned to journalism. Tell us a little bit about your journey to writing and then also about your, your work at National Geographic. Um, so I grew up in a funeral home. Uh, every male in my family since 1898 had worked in the business hmm. until me. And um, uh, when it came time to tell my parents what I wanted to do with my life, I was afraid to tell them I wanted to be a writer. I'd been writing short stories, won the you know, elementary school writing prize and that sort of thing as a, as a kid. But, but I really felt we live in a small community in Southern New Jersey. And I felt like if I was going to abandon my family, I needed to be responsible about it. And so I majored in accounting in college which couldn't be further from, from creative writing. Yeah. But I felt like I needed to study something that didn't come naturally to me. Um, and then, you know, I tried to further compromise. Uh, and if I love to write, what's an accountant who loves to write do? Well, he goes to law school. And so I went to law school. And uh, I practiced law in Washington, D.C., international law. And in between there, I had a Fulbright to um, University of Tokyo, and I, I, um, I spent a little time working in the executive office of the president of the United States. Um, and so I had some international perspective, and I, I got a job as an international lawyer in D.C. It was great. I loved it, um, but it wasn't my passion. Yeah. And eventually you have to, well, in my case, the triggering event was my father got very ill, and... Uh, uh, so it came full circle. Um, it was, I was 32 and uh, we knew he wasn't going to, he was 55. He's younger than I am now. And he had uh, only a few months to live. And so I said, I, I need to share with you that I um, went to law school because I was afraid to tell you I wanted to be a writer. And he, he looked at me, uh, he was so hurt uh, that I had kept that from him. And I, I was just terrible for me. We were staying in the hospital or I was in the hospital room. And uh, he said, look, you, you have to follow your passion. And, and what he added was I'm 55 years old. I've spent my whole life working. And uh, what I really care about is throwing a uh, fishing, throwing a worm into a lake. So if you can pay your bills, you go throw a worm into a lake. 
So I went back to the firm and, and uh, gave my resignation. What a great, what great advice. And then you went to work. Is that when you started working for National Geographic then? Well, I said, so I floundered. I thought, ah, how hard can it be to write a novel? Uh, <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I'd written far in excess of novels, number of pages as a lawyer. And uh, I, I, I've always been attracted to thrillers and, and uh, exciting, more on the adventure edge of, of books. And so I bought a bunch of them um, and uh, broke them down and, and tried to distill a formula. And I thought, this is going to be a piece of cake. And uh, it turns out it's not. Uh, it turns out uh, uh, I had a house on Capitol Hill, very nice home that a lawyer would have. And I sold that house and sold my car and moved back to the family funeral home and lived up in the, uh, my, my father's boyhood room. And uh, it was abandoned that, that building and just wrote alone for another year. Um, and then I heard about something called the Iowa writers workshop. And um, I wrote to them and um, they invited me out for the summer. Um, uh, they have a summer program is really wonderful and anybody who is interested in writing should consider it um I, the the teacher that summer was james allen mcpherson and he was extraordinary he he brought me back to what uh, mattered to me about writing that writing could be important that that he um you know his mentor was was ellison and and uh uh, he loved, one of his obsessions was natural language to talking about, you know, capturing the way people talk um, and the, the jazz rhythms of the people around you. And uh, having grown up in a funeral home where one of the joys, you know, outsiders think of it as a very sad experience, but most people, um, uh, the funeral home can be a, a place of family gathering. And so I grew up with people telling stories in the form of eulogies, but also just coming in and sharing. It's the one thing they can do to release tension and, and settle up past. And, and to hear uh, McPherson talk about the, how that could be valuable to, to capture that. Um, and he turned me on to Zora Neale Hurston and um, a guy named Chestnut and, and it just opened a door for me. And so I applied, he said, I'd like you to stay and, and apply um, for to, to do the full program. And I said, I've been in school forever. Uh, I, I can't do any more. And he said, well, you can, uh, what if I get you approved to audit? You won't have to pay. You can just stay and, and take the classes. And I said, okay. And he, he said, but I need, um, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna get the name right. I, I, the head of the Iowa Writers Workshop at the time uh, needed to approve it, and uh, he took a look at uh, the manuscript that that I was working with that summer, and he said, "What I can see, this is pop culture fiction," and I said, "Well, yeah, uh, we've been discussing how to use." you know, more popular fiction 
narrative techniques to deliver messages that more to bring more people in something I've done as an investigator and things. And he, Frank Conroy, he was just, <laughs> if one can look down their nose at you, yeah. uh, that Frank did that to me that day. And uh, he said, you're not getting in here. And, um, uh, um, and, and thankfully he did, but, but I, and I'm sorry, this is such a long story, but what's crazy about this is I was, in my, I'm renting a room in this Iowa house, Iowa city house. And I am sleeping on a futon and I get a call and it's an uncle that I haven't seen since my father's funeral. And he says, I hear you are a writer now. I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, I hear you're committed. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm committed. He said, well, I have a story to tell you. And he was a undercover agent for the FBI. Um, pioneered some of the FBI's techniques and he had been a hero of mine as a boy. Um, and he had out of the blue kind of disappeared from our family. And there was, it was never clear what had happened to him. And he said, you come see me and I'll tell you my story and we'll see if you can, you, that'll help you. And uh, so I got my truck and I drove from Iowa to Maryland where he lived and uh, sat and listened to his story um, for weeks and it was extraordinary. And, and, um, uh, I, I said, well, I got to meet the guys you're talking about this underworld. He was investigating the mafia in Philadelphia. And, uh, he said, um, no, no, no. I, I had a nervous breakdown as a result of this operation. I, I don't want to be connected with any of those people. I said, well, I, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I think I got to meet these guys. And, um, uh, one by one, he introduced me and I went to meet them. And after a while, he said, look, you have a talent for talking to people, getting them to tell you their stories. If you want to be an investigative journalist or an investigative writer is what he called it, I'll train you. And, and he started training me and it was, it, he was, it was, it was like McPherson all over again, but it was, he has specific techniques and it was extraordinary. And I did a story, um, uh, one story for, for Playboy on the theft of the world's most valuable coin. Um, and uh, an editor at uh, National Geographic read that story for me and uh, said, if, if we gave you a project, what would you do? And I said, well, I, there's a guy operating in uh, Malaysia who's notoriously bad. Uh, he's trafficking everything on the planet elephants, reptiles, rare birds, <clears throat> I'd go after that guy. And they said, well, we don't do crime, but we'll give you a shot and, and see how that goes. And so they did. And uh, that was my first story for them. That's amazing. I mean, it, it, it answers a question I had later on about how do you write such good bad guys? Uh, so that's a great story to answer that question. Um, so you re you reported, like you said, on rare coins, on reptile trafficking, on the ivory trade. Uh, wh at what point did you say, okay, now I'm ready to go back and and dive into the fiction pool again? And and what did your experience in investigative journalism, in, in what ways did that prepare you for coming back to writing a novel? So a couple of things things conspired at the same time. Um, 
just as I felt like I was suppressing a passion when I went to law school, I, I even as an investigative journalist, I felt like I, I was still leaving something on the table. I, I, I still felt like my, my best self, my best talent was creating story, imagining story. So I always felt that I would come back to that. But I also felt I was running out of time and I remembered how difficult it was back 15 years earlier. And I, I feared that it would take a while to learn the craft. I, don't, I didn't know what the transition would be like from nonfiction to fiction. Yeah. And uh, a couple of other things that I had on my mind were uh, I had <clears throat> chosen my investigations for geographic um, strategically to, I, to, to investigate criminals trafficking in species that people cared the most about with the idea that um, if they cared a lot about these animals, we could get things, laws changed, people put in jail um, in ways that would uh, help all species. And I came at that the, after hearing uh, uh, Will Smith, he was, he had just been voted the, or declared the, the, the highest earning actor in Hollywood. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't want to make money, but I did want to have impact. And, and they asked him, you know, how did you, how did you, how'd you do it? And he said, I sat down with my agent and I looked at the highest grossing films over the last 10 years and science fiction outweighed, uh, everything else. Um, and, um, so we did men in black yeah. and we did men in black too. <laughs> and, and he continued in that genre. And I thought, okay, what's the genre of, of investigative journalism that could have the best impact on the planet or on, and, and on animals. And that genre, uh, if I can use that word, where, where certain species are different than others. So elephants, rhinos, these are the beloved species. And, um, and I could see that I was gonna run out of those species and that in a few years, I would be reporting on species that were endangered, but, but couldn't make a difference in terms of legislation or policy and things. So that was what was started me thinking, okay, now's your time. You gotta, you gotta transition. I, I like to end a story before, you know, I like to leave the reader wanting more and in my life. I felt, okay, let's don't hang around uh, wanting to do something else. Do it before you're ready. Yeah. Well, um, this will be a nice segue because what everything you've told us could only be told to us by somebody who had written this book. I mean, it's, so tell us a little bit without giving too much away, tell us a little bit about the novel um, and, and the main character, Tom Clay. Sure. Well, Clay, so Clay, uh, based on what I've just said, may sound a little familiar. He is a, an investigative journalist for a very famous magazine, and his specialty, specialty is wildlife trafficking. But Clay has uh, a second side to him. He has um, a relationship with the CIA. He's a CIA asset. And from Clay's jaded perspective, that's unethical to have that relationship uh, as a journalist. But Clay is jaded. He's had a rough for life. And um, um, he is fine 
um, taking that deal. It's a devil's bargain. He gives the CIA a little bit of information on the people he meets in the field and the agency gives him, in, passes him intelligence that he uses to make award-winning uh, investigative stories. Um, and on one of those projects, Clay is in Kenya as part of an anti-poaching operation and his best friend is murdered. And the CIA comes back to him and says, um, we'll help you uh, get the guy who did this. And Clay takes that bargain and um, begins that investigation. And as things unfold, he, he discovers that his, for years, he has been part of a much bigger game. And the real enemy, uh, his real enemy, is not in Africa. He's much, much closer to home than he ever realized. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, at the beginning of the novel, you said they're they're involved in a in an anti poaching operation. He's he's uh, in Africa with with a friend of his who lives there and and some other folks. And and it's a it's a situation that for most readers, I would imagine, um, we're in pretty unfamiliar territory. This is this is not something. It's not like you know Bob woke up and made an omelet for breakfast. You know, um, talk about how you how you start the novel. Um, you engage the reader with that intrigue, and yet at the same time, you help us to understand what's going on in, a, in an unfamiliar uh, world. Well, of course, I really love Africa. And um, so I, I was very eager to bring that to the page in, in fiction. And I, I have been on the ground with um, rangers and, and what we call in journalism fixers, the people who kind of get you oriented and, and walk you through um, strange places for you. And I, and I always felt that they, they never get, they're never in the part of the story. You never read about the fixer in the National Geographic story ever. Yeah. Um, uh, and I thought I would like to put these guys, uh, that's a, a secret world that I'd like to put right on the first page. Yeah. Um, and uh and I did that, and and I was also really intrigued by. Um, uh, I wanted the book to to address real issues and and the world as I saw it, and some of the criminality, and we can get to that. Um, um, but when I thought about thriller writers who had uh, reached beyond the page to to wrestle with real world issues, John Le Carre. Came, came up immediately. Sure. And his spy who came in from the cold offered a really nice moment in the beginning at Checkpoint Charlie. It opens, <clears throat> you know, with Lamus, the, the main character, waiting for his agent to come across um, the bridge there at Checkpoint Charlie. And of course the guy's, uh, the, the agent is murdered. Um, but that very small space in a single room um, waiting for someone and and that someone being part of um, a, a much bigger criminal operation, that, that sort of three-step was very appealing to me. And, and my father had been stationed at Checkpoint Charlie, so it, it uh, and I have beside my desk a, a photograph of the tanks uh, uh, back in the 60s when they're, aimed at each other. And, and I have that photo because that's what I think of myself as when I'm writing. I, I am 
<clears throat> Charles Bukowski used to say it's called it, it, he called his typewriter the machine gun and uh, yeah. uh, uh, I I think of it as my, that's my tool. I, I may maybe that I noticed this in your novel because we've all been watching this Hemingway documentary on PBS, but I keep seeing, you know, there's fly fishing and there's whiskey and there's all these sort of symbols of traditional American masculinity, if you will, that are, that are woven throughout this novel. Can you talk about in a more general way now, how you use detail to create character and especially Tom's character? Yeah, he, um, it's really difficult to, I did want, I wanted a classic American male. I want it because in some ways this, this book at a, at a, I don't know if it will resonate for readers and in some ways it doesn't matter, but for me, it was, he represents America yeah. uh, going out into the world. And so choosing those symbols almost um, assert themselves on me as, as the writer. And I played back and forth with what would work. And, and then of course, Clay forms his own personality. And before you know it, he's just doing what he does and and this makes sense or that makes sense for him um yeah i wanted i wanted some symbology that that <clears throat> that fit the genre and um and sort of help the picture of uh of an american yeah male and and then i wanted him to address this notion of toxic masculinity i i mean the genre itself of the american thriller is is overwrought with toxic masculinity, which is um, which is another reason why Le Carre is such a nice counterpoint. Yeah, and yet he's too British for for my taste. So uh, I don't care about somebody's what what strata that accent suggests to them. Um, so I really enjoy. I appreciate your your picking up on that. And, yeah. and, so Tom, um, he, he says something that really struck me, and, and maybe it's because I love old movies and it was the exact opposite of what Jimmy Stewart says in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Jimmy Stewart says, lost causes are the only ones worth fighting for. And Tom says, uh, he's only gonna write stories that he can win. Um, I, I'm curious about two things. First of all, do you think that's like a tendency in journalism uh, to only write stories that you can win? Uh, and and why why did you want to make Tom somebody who sort of shies away from the lost cause? That's a great question. I didn't know that about Jimmy Stewart, but uh, uh, that's I really I'm going to cherish that. That's, that's <laughs> nice. Um, um, yeah, I wanted to have. I mean, I feel like in America today we are the jaded nation where we don't get involved and and over the course of this book in particular, we were changing as a nation incredibly rapidly. So with, you, you know, uh, America first and this sort of uh, jingoistic uh, evolution was, was happening so fast. And so I think in an early draft, Clay was eager to take on sorts of issues and as I thought about it, um, a couple of things play. I, 
I mean, I confess, I chose my, as I said, I chose stories I thought I could win. Sure. Um, I, I, I didn't know if I could get the criminal to talk to me. That was the huge challenge. And it's a big rush. It's like, you know, it's like, can I acquire this person? Yeah. Um, and if, and I, I never failed, yeah. which I'm, you know, and, and, uh, I, and, but I spent two years, minimum of two years on every story, which is extraordinary. Um, so, uh, I wanted him and, and I wanted him to have the hero's arc. I wanted him to have, you know, the Joseph Campbell, um, I, the hero refuses the, the call and he either does, uh, change his mind or, suffers the consequences and that mattered a lot to me. So Tom, we talked a little while ago about the, the ethics of working for the CIA and also being a journalist. And Tom, Tom worries about that to a, to a certain extent. Um, and that made me sort of start to think about is, is Tom an ethical character? Do, do you see him as an ethical character? Uh, and and maybe, maybe give us a little bit of background about journalistic ethics for those of us who maybe don't quite know what the rules are? Uh, well, a caveat. Um, I'm not the last person to give advice on journalistic <laughs> ethics, but I'm, I'm not at the top of the list. Uh, and I say that because I'm, I'm not trained as a journalist. And I, for example, the biggest thing I discovered really late in my, I'd done a lot of stories, um, is that undercover work is seen by the current journalism establishment as unethical. Huh. And uh, I grew up on 60 Minutes and, yeah. and you know, uh, cr crime shows and, and I had a TV version idea of what an investigative journalist was. So I did, I did all kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, and, and not a, most of that didn't make it into stories, but I, I'm very, or I was very imaginative in things that, yeah. uh, just to get the facts. That's all I cared about. So Clay, Clay is similar uh, in that regard. He, he doesn't care. He's had a harder life, and he's been screwed over by the government, in, in particular uh, the FBI, and. Uh, um, as, he, as a boy, they, they went after his father. And so he, he, that's why he's fine taking the CIA's bargain. And he, he doesn't care at all about um, the journalism establishment. But the general rules are you don't, you, you definitely don't um, cooperate with government, certainly not intelligence agencies. Although, if you look at the history of, of CIA, for example, and um, journalism, most of the major outlets have, uh, certainly in time of World War II, um, collaborated with, with sure. the intelligence services. Sure. One, one of the things that Tom, uh, and I'm gonna uh, quote a line from the, from the book here, a, a character describes Tom this way, and I think this kind of digs down on what you've just been talking about. He says, you break rules frequently, but you have a sense of justice. Could, could you talk about that paradox a little bit? Yeah. I, uh, yes. Thank you. Uh, uh, I think uh, to me, and to certainly to Clay, to Clay, the rules don't matter 
if you're doing it for the right reason. Um, and he, now his hubris is that he thinks he knows the right reason. Yeah. And, and ultimately, uh, as the book unfolds, his breaking rules um, is part of what leads to the real tragedy that he experiences. And so I wanted to do that too. I wanted to really uh, let loose some of my own feelings about what it takes to get a story and, and kind of the, you know, uh, hypocrisy in, in, in these. So the same people uh, who will tell you, um, you can't do undercover. If you bring them a story you've, you've gathered because you did some undercover work uh, and it's extraordinary we'll find another word to describe what you did. Yeah. Uh, and um, so Clay, Clay is a guy who has experienced that. And he, unlike me, says, screw it. It's whatever I can do. Yeah. Yeah. He, he also, I think there's, there's a certain cynicism to him. He says at one point, he says, lines implied a system. There was no system to the world, no handrails. What, what, do you, what does he mean by that? I think, uh, you know, I was as a boy taught that laws are meant to be obeyed. And if you follow the rules, if you, if you study hard and you get a certain grades, you will go to this school. And if you go to this school, you will be able to get this job and, and you can march through. No one especially said this to me, but it's, it's what I took from the very um, protected um, way I grew up. And, you know, that's not the way the world works. I was a Washington lawyer and uh, <clears throat> I'd worked uh, and I'd done some criminal stuff. And my mentor, one of my early mentors as a writer was uh, a Philadelphia undercover figure, uh, under underworld figure who had been my uncle's target. So, yeah. so my uncle says, I'm going to tell you my story. I say, I have to go meet these guys. You investigated one of the guys is a pretty prominent underworld guy who when I knock on his door has just tried to kill himself oh, God. and his wife tells me he's in the hospital on suicide watch at Penn and it turns out that hospital was a few blocks from my apartment so I asked her permission and I said you know sometimes talking to people um, helps you um, helps you if you're depressed. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, you can try. She was on a nasal cannula and hunched over and things. And uh, so I went to the hospital, to the psych ward and they had him in lockdown. And I knocked on the door and the nurse let me in and they said, what's your name? I said, my name is Brian. Well, it turns out his grandson's name was Brian. I didn't make that mistake. I, I, that was a mistake on my part. Yeah. And they, they tell him Brian is here. And as I'm walking into the room, he mistakes me for his grandson and he jumps up and he's so happy to see me. And I say, no, no, no. And in fact, I knew his grandson. It's a weird coincidence, but I yeah. did know his grandson. And uh, I said, no, I, but, but Brian, and he did, knows I'm here and I just wanted to come and see you. And, but I had investigated this man for years um, because he's with my uncle's target. I had all my uncle's undercover notebooks. So I knew all about it. And I could say, you know, weren't you friends? 
weren't you friends with this guy? He was like a jeweler, you know, back in the day. Ah, that guy is a son of a bitch. How do you know him? Like, I don't really know him, but I know about him. And he had a place in Atlantic City. Oh, that, yeah. Uh, and uh, so uh, he taught me that, um, I'm, I'm spacing on your original question. Um, <laughs> he taught me that, I, I, like I would say, he would talk to me about, uh, he would constantly say things like 65,000 kids. That's 65,000 kids. That's what this government did. And he's talking about Vietnam. Yeah. And he was a Navy man. And he loved the Navy um, um, in World War II. Uh, but his experience um, with the government was, was an underworld experience. And I, he would constantly tell me points from history, Leopold and Loeb, the stories, and, yeah. and firsthand, or close to firsthand, um, he knew figure, and I'd say, I didn't know that. And he would say, yeah, of course you didn't know that. You're, that's because you're educated. <laughs> and he, he, he opened my eyes to uh, a world where, where your, your, your college degrees don't matter and yeah. looking at what's, you know, what, what's, where is justice? Where is the justice? And so that, that's to your question. Um, so I, he's, he, James Allen McPherson and my uncle as a, as a storyteller are my biggest influences. So let's talk a little bit about where Tom supposedly works, at least at the beginning of the novel. It's a, it's a, a <laughs> magazine called The Sovereign. Uh, is this, I mean, the whole time I'm reading about it, I'm like, is he giving me like a, a backstage tour of National Geographic? Because it, it feels that way a little bit. Is Does it come somewhat from that or, or is it uh, more of a composite of different places? It's it's both a, um, it's it's quite close to geographic in a lot of ways, physically. Um, there, I took a few liberties and I, I changed some things around, but it's, it's pretty close. Um, it really has that, uh, American Museum of Natural History feel to it, particularly yeah. um, depending whose office you're in, and an older editor like like features in the in the book will have had writers and photographers for decades yeah. coming back from the field, the most extraordinary places, bringing often a single gift, yeah. and over time those things aggregate, and you can. Yeah, and there are some. I mean, geographic is an extraordinary place, and they're geographic explorers. I, I mean, they have great senses of humor. They have, the, uh, but an incredible courage, and uh, they bring back some amazing things. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love the description of of the space. Now, this this organization, because it's more than just a magazine, um, it, it gets transformed rather dramatically in the first sort of third of the novel. Uh, when it when it gets purchased by new owners, um, is that before before we talk about the Perseus Group, who, who are the people who buy the magazine, um, is that transformation in any way symbolic of the way journalism has changed during during the years that you've been involved, uh, or is it more you're looking towards what might happen in the future? Uh, well, it's, it's so it is all of that. It is. Um, 
is um, representative of um, specifically what happened to Geographic, which is, I mean, a lot of people don't know that Fox bought Geographic. Um, and I was there when that, they, they had long had a piece of Nat Geo TV, but they bought, Rupert Murdoch did the entire uh, entity and held it for a few years and then um, spun it off to Disney now has Geographic. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, I had left before Disney and wrote the book before Disney, <clears throat> but I, uh, it, in one early, early draft, I had Disney actually as a, an acquirer. <laughs> uh, and then when they actually did it, I, I think I had a chance to delete it. Cause I didn't think I, I didn't want to suggest that I was writing something that, that was real. In the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Your question is exactly right. The, the idea that, that journalism is being bought up, that it's being commodified, and um, the quality of investigative journalism <clears throat> has fallen dramatically. Um, uh, not the quality, but the, the, the opportunity to do investigative yeah. journalism has, has, has shrunk. Um, yeah, I wanted to address that. One of the things that I that, that fascinated me about these these new owners, the Perseus Group that comes in and buys the the sovereign, is their commitment to technology. I mean, you show this brilliantly in the in the first scene. There's a uh, press conference where where Clay's going to talk to the to the new owner, and the new owner's there basically as a hologram, you know, on stage. Um, but but this group claims to believe that technology can hold the answer to both to peacekeeping and to conservation, to, to issues that are sort of close to Tom's heart. Um, do you think there's a realistic role for technology in those fields? And do you think realistically it's more likely to, to help or to hinder efforts in those fields? Uh, quick answer, the short answer is absolutely. There's a, there's a great role for technology in both fields, in, in peacekeeping and conservation. And I have, Again, as an explorer, I have friends that <laughs> have developed some extraordinary technologies to help animals. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to do was uh, put on the page something I've seen, um, which is that um, technologies that we would refuse if they were applied to people are often used for social issues as a Trojan horse to develop and get approval for the technology. And then it's expand, it's moved over to, to, to areas that we would never have approved of um, were So animals in that way become a kind of bleeding heart um, way of getting what would, some very nefarious technologies. And I'll give you a parallel example. Um, I did a investigation on the opioid uh, world. Um, yeah. And, you know, the Sacra family had just, well, had been well exposed and the problems were, were well understood. Um, and they were, many of the people involved were, were give, doing their mea culpas in the United States. But overseas, they were, they had a different operation going on. And uh, some big pharma, well, big, big pharma was over in Burma and in Africa, uh, trying to sell opioids, um, oxy, et cetera. And the way they did it was to say, we want to treat, this is only a painkiller. We can't get, um, we can't get uh, the cheap drugs um, 
that you need, we're going to get you opioids to, for, uh, these are for terminal patients who are in extreme pain. And that's the way they began with that. Yeah. Um, and they were using that. It was very clear to me that once we get you hooked on that, and in, in some cases, I very much suspect they were giving um, government officials a cut, a, a back-end cut, government, uh, uh, some of the military in that part of the world was getting a back-end cut on that uh, deal. Morphine was a much cheaper, much more available uh, solution if they really wanted just to treat pain, but they wanted that road in. And um, so I wanted to capture, um, a, as a guy who has worked as an international lawyer and things, I wanted to put on the page for people how that what seems good can be um, intentionally from the beginning, uh, something that uh, if, you, if you project far enough into the future, you can see where it's going. Well, part of, part of your work as a journalist and part of Tom's work as a journalist really sort of overlaps, and we see this in with Geographic and with The Sovereign, with, with the world of exploration. And, you know, I grew up with National Geographic in the house every month. You know, it was, our, it was in the days before we traveled internationally or anything like that. It was the way to, you know, to see the world, literally. Um, but now there's this feeling that you can kind of when COVID's not going on, hop on a plane and go anywhere. You can take a safari any place. You can go adventure traveling. What for somebody who wants to be an explorer? What's left, or or is there anything left? So I think it's I think it becomes a question of how you stratify uh, reality. So historically, exploration is finding a continent or a country or or a a place that's unknown, but there are unknowns in the human brain. There are unknowns in space, in the ocean, physical places that are unknown, but there are all sorts of unknowns. There are unknowns in storytelling, unknowns in, in one of the things that I'm um, um, interested in is, is using uh, fiction um, uh, to, to deliver um, information to people in ways that yeah. that haven't been explored before, or at least not in the not in the way that kind of a hybrid of geographic reporting and, and fiction, and those are unknowns. And of course, all the scientific thing, you know, all the CRISPR and all the things we're learning in, about. Uh, so you're right; um, it does feel very much uh, like the world's uh, very accessible and very familiar, and we can just YouTube that. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, there is a bit of a dog chasing at the heels of Nat Geo explorers to come up with the new, new thing. But fortunately, uh, I mean, human ingenuity is, is boundless. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. Uh, you should be able to answer each of them in just a couple of words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. Uh, what word do you love to work into your writing? I'm going to give you a phrase. Okay. Uh, the, the phrase, what's the opposite of that? Okay. And I both write that. Well, I'll, I'll, that's, that's my answer. Okay. What word or, or phrase, if you prefer, do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? 
obviously. Yeah. Uh, where's your favorite place to write? At my my desk where I am now. Um, and, and for those of you who are listening, you can't see what I can see, which is he has a, he's a genuine good old fashioned typewriter sitting right behind him. Uh, <laughs> where could you never write? I, it turns out I know this um, in a RV. Oh, okay. Uh, to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? The sentences have to verbs. Okay. What was the first book you remember reading? Hardy Boys, I guess. All right. What are you reading now? Oh, that's a good question. When you're writing, of course, you're... you're oh, I'm reading... Um, uh, the Committed. Okay. What book would you like to have written? Blood's a Rover. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Uh, Cannery Row style Steinbeck book. Okay. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Your book made a real difference for me. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Brian Christie, whose novel, In the Company of Killers, is available wherever books are sold. Brian, thanks for joining us. Charlie, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to debut novelist Shelley Nolden about her new novel, The Vines, set in one of my favorite places, North Brother Island of New York City. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Mm -hmm.